Welcome to The Debris. This is where we talk about what was left behind by Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed. I'm your host, Eve Tro. We're coming to you from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio. We are so pumped that all of you are here. This is going to be a fabulous, fabulous set of 10 days. On a sunny day this past June, 900 Habitat for Humanity volunteers from all over the country gathered on America Street in New Orleans East to build houses. And this is a community where we have already built 48 homes, so these 10 will make it 58. And if you'll recall, that's that's uh, 58 out of a total of 450 that we have done post-Katrina in New Orleans since the failure of the levees and flood walls. Habitat was a major nonprofit brand in New Orleans, attracting lots of donors and volunteers, building on a base that was strong before the storm. But Katrina brought an influx of new people who showed up to help in all kinds of ways. Some arrived on their own and found causes or groups to join. I remember a table of clowns. Yes, red noses and face paint and goofy jumpsuits sitting at a coffee shop in Baton Rouge a few weeks after the flood, when the river center there was full of people evacuated from New Orleans. They'd come down in a car from Canada to offer their services. Clowns. Some volunteer efforts were perhaps more pertinent than others. And some efforts were not always in touch with what the city or its people needed most— The years since Katrina have given a whole new meaning to Blanche Dubois' famous line from a streetcar named Desire, set in New Orleans. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Government and private industry played their roles, but only went so far. New Orleans would not be where it is today without the students, church groups, retirees, professional organizations, and lone good souls who gave their time and energy to rebuilding. At least a million people by one count, and likely many millions. Newcomers, many of them, and many became new New Orleanians. Here's producer Kate Richardson to kick us off with more from this year's Habitat for Humanity Build-A-Thon. It's an unofficial but often strictly observed rule that conventions and other out-of-towner events in New Orleans must begin with a staged second line. As the Habitat for Humanity volunteers filed off to their work sites on America Street, Dominic Grillo provided the soundtrack. The smell of sunscreen wafted through the air, as did a drone taking pictures of the event for social media. Hashtag America Street, hashtag Buildathon. The event also drew visitors from the city's higher and drier neighborhoods, like the French Quarter. Yes, we represent the Vukray chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, and we're here to present the group leaders with flags of the United States to present to each homeowner eventually. Sierra Duplessis stood on her front porch on America Street, 
watching the parade of volunteers head to their work sites. Two years ago, Habitat for Humanity built Sierra's house. And I love it. It's very good to see the neighborhood coming back together. We get help from people all over. You know, it's nice. Melissa Braden works for Habitat for Humanity in Worcester, Massachusetts. Volunteering for the Build-A-Thon on America Street was her first time in New Orleans. While nonprofits remain a huge part of funding many efforts here, from public education to arts and culture, she says it's sad more organizations haven't stuck around long term. It's also very sad that there's still so many houses here that could easily be fixed and nobody's doing anything. New Orleans may be the city that CARE forgot, but it's also the city that has been rebuilt by CARE, from around the nation and the world. Habitat for Humanity has played a very specific role, building new homes and promoting home ownership. Other organizations helped gut and rebuild existing homes, work that's still going on today. Charities have been picking up the slack long after government assistance and insurance money has run out. And they've promoted the city, introducing a huge number of people to New Orleans. Dan Cahoon is a construction director at Habitat for Humanity. I think New Orleans is still a good, is still a nice uh, volunteer vacation de- destination because, well, it's New Orleans, so you can you know, do what you need, you know, do, do the right thing during the day, and then go have a good time at night. Do good, have a good time. In some ways, this volunteerism can feel a little strange, like its own type of performance. The mostly unskilled volunteers working hard, doing their best. The New Orleans hosts explaining both the tragedy of Katrina and the reasons they love living here. Local favorite Quintron, blared from the boombox as volunteers dutifully hammer nails into what would soon be someone's brand new house. Some, like those before them, will be back to visit the city, and some may even end up moving here. Regardless, they are the latest of the many waves of volunteers who've touched down here in the past decade and made their mark on the city. Kate Richardson on America Street in New Orleans East. Several facts and figures have been adopted as common knowledge about Hurricane Katrina. Whether you're a lifelong resident or a new one, it can be hard to separate fact from urban legend. Investigative news site The Lens is doing a series called Katrina Fact Check to figure out what's accurate, what's way off the mark, and where some of these memes came from. First up, the startling estimate of how much of New Orleans was flooded by the levee breaches and storm surge. Here's a clip from a video on YouTube called The Rebirth of New Orleans. While the city escaped a direct hit by Hurricane Katrina, rising waters breached the levees surrounding the city, leaving 80% of New Orleans underwater. That 80% underwater statistic, that was everywhere after the flood, but nobody could name a source. Mayor Ray Nagin was the first to say the number in public just hours after the news broke about the levee breaches. That night, he went on WWL-TV and gave an interview uh, in which he said, you know, 
it, it appears that 80% of the city is probably flooded. Uh, in some areas, it's as high as 20 feet. Uh, and that interview then went on national television the next morning. And uh, CNN was uh, repeating it throughout the morning. Uh, from there, it went to, uh, you know, the Associated Press. And it had appeared in, you know, almost every newspaper across the country the next day. But where did he get that number? Lens reporter Charles Maldonado found out. It was a guy named Marty. Marty Bamundi, a FEMA worker. The morning uh, uh, of the 29th, when the 17th Street Canal was breached, uh, he, he got news of that. And the later that afternoon, he took a, a helicopter ride over to see the breach. And when he returned from that, he alerted uh, other FEMA officials, including uh, Michael Brown, that it looked to him like about 80% of the city was probably flooded. Later that evening, about 7, 7.30, he had a meeting with uh, Mayor Nagan. Nagan then went on TV, and, and it's kind of the rest is history from there. Fact-checkers at The Lens poured over post-storm damage assessments, trying to determine how much of the city was actually flooded. They found an Army Corps of Engineers report on flooding measured in acres inside the city's levee system. You know, if you took that figure by itself, um, it would be about 40-some-odd percent of the city. But then if you added, if you if you assumed that the areas outside of the levees were entirely or nearly entirely flooded by storm surge rather than than the the levee breaks and you add that to the total then it came out to just about 80 percent of the city that's that's what we found it looks like it looks like based on our work that uh it's a good figure so it might have been lucky that that turned out to be true but says charles maldonado of the lens you can use the number 80 percent more Katrina fact check is at thelensnola.org. The site of the flooded city was beamed around the world, and like many disasters, those images included the helping hands of celebrities. There was Sean Penn helping rescue stranded people in a speedboat. And a star-studded network TV Katrina benefit, where Kanye West had the line of the night. George Bush doesn't care about black people. The most famous celebrity contribution from Katrina has definitely been from Brad Pitt. His Make It Right Foundation has pledged to help residents of the badly flooded Lower Ninth Ward by building homes. And she joined our church while she was there, and that's how we knew her, and we kept in touch when she came back. One hot early evening, three middle-aged women step out of an SUV at the corner of Deslande and Roman Streets in the Lower Ninth. So glad I met these beautiful people. 2005. It's just a block away from where one of the levees broke, wiping away most houses. They're here to check out a small park and memorial to Katrina victims and to see the 100 new homes people call the Brad Pitt Houses. They're bright colors, like the shotgun houses around the city, but these houses are contemporary architecture, angular and innovative, not to mention elevated to escape flooding and with green features like solar panels. 
Jean Firth is looking at humanitarian aid and celebrities for her graduate work at the London School of Economics. She also helps run the Grodat Youth Farm here in New Orleans. Firth spoke to reporter Jesse Hardman about the legacy of Brad Pitt and the Make It Right Foundation. Brad Pitt has a really powerful narrative, really personal, where he describes, I mean, his abject horror of walking around this neighborhood and seeing the homes that had been leveled and talking to families and people who had been displaced and who had lost loved ones and everything that they owned. And really, yeah, like has this very impassioned story about how that touched him um, and made him feel that something needed to be set right or made right. And also this idea that it shouldn't take a disaster for people to have homes that are sustainable and green and um, theoretically could withstand the impacts of something like what happened. So I think that's a lot. You know, it's that very personal narrative around, can't, can't we make this right? And he's also created an organization around it. Um, how common is that as opposed to a celebrity, somebody with money showing up and just leaving money behind, but actually creating an infrastructure around it? Mm-hmm. Um, celebrities engage in this kind of work in a lot of different ways. Traditionally, it has looked um, more like spokespeople. Someone will sign on to a project and show up at a gala and give some money. There's a lot of people in New Orleans that do things like that. But there has been a rise kind of in the new poverty agenda is what it's termed of celebrities as actors that are actually starting their own initiatives. So in New Orleans, probably this is one of the most high profile ones. And that's actually one of the things that I find so fascinating about all of this is this idea that if you ask somebody nationally and you tell them the two words, Katrina and rebuilding, they're very likely to say Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, before the Army Corps, before something that the city did, before something that happened nationally, you know, Brad Pitt is very much associated with this project. Dissect that a little bit, um, the fact that his name is so tied to redevelopment here in New Orleans. How is that a good thing, a bad thing? <laughs> it's complicated. Um, I think that from a development agenda, celebrities are seen as being able to mobilize resources, so connections, cachet, media, and finances um, in a way that is much more nimble than traditional development actors. So there's been a lot of interest in celebrity philanthropy internationally because they are flexible. I run an organization in town here, and if I was going to try to raise $100,000 for the organization that I run through government funds, that process of grant applications and then accountability on the back end as far as the kind of reporting that you have to do are very extensive if you have U.S. government funds. On the other hand, if you have a private donor or a private you know, celebrity who not only gives you a $100,000 check, says, I don't care what you do with it, I trust you, just spend it, and then also um, is willing to tweet about it or put it up on their website or mention it at an awards show, that might have a impact just from your donor um, kind of network alone far beyond anything that you would have gotten with other systems. So that's there, you know, there's why people are interested. Um, mm-hmm. The sort of disadvantages a lot of the questions right now are around um, accountability. So in that same way that I said, you know, a government grant may be tied to all of these regulations and reporting requirements, some people might argue that that's good, that there should be um, accountability in the way that an organization spends its money. Um, And also a lot of the thinking right now is that if a celebrity project fails, as they do, I mean, Madonna's school in Africa 
just recently shut its doors. Several of Wendell Pierce's projects here have never really picked off, despite him doing really grocery store. his grocery store work and Pontchartrain Park, his redevelopment homes there. Um, despite a lot of passion from him, and I think, you know, what seems to be very genuine desire to do good work where he's from, if a project fails, does that actually hurt their name? Does it, if, does it mean that Madonna will sell less albums? <laughs> does it mean that, um, you know, Wendell Pierce is less likely to get cast in another show on TV? And we don't know. And does that make <laughs> them less likely to continue to do philanthropy? Sure, right. And does that make, the, make you gun-shy or mm-hmm. nervous about, um, you know, engaging in that and in a way that could be, yeah, possibly transformative um, or possibly have ramifications for vulnerable people that are not served by a project that fails. So, This uh, neighborhood is so interesting because, okay, there's these new houses here. They're eco-friendly. They retain rainwater. They have solar panels. But yet 10 years later, these houses are here, but they're still not an accessible grocery store. There aren't you know, basic resources here. So you've got your house now, but it seems like, you know, 10 years is both a long time away from a a disaster happening, but in terms of the layers of kind of recovery, there's still a lot to be done here. Absolutely. And I think that's why a lot of times people want to talk about a project like this, a celebrity project or just a nonprofit initiative in general and say, has it been successful? And just to point at the tension that you're noting, that um, there are 100 homes here that weren't here before, and they're LEED-certified platinum. (laughs) And, you know, fitting that within the larger context of um, how many homes aren't here, how many people are not back, where can they buy groceries, where can they go to school, you know, all of these other pieces that make a community whole. So it really is what is your measure of success. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, could a Brad Pitt recruit if, if this is what his contribution is, should it have created other celebrities coming here and providing those other layers? And if it didn't, is it in one way not a success? Right. We, should have, we could have a celebrity or, philanthropy city down here. Um. <laughs> or, or, or is this where the city needs to pick up and, okay, this person you know, created this opportunity and then the city adds the next layer? Like, what's, what's the, the recipe it's that coalition building, I think, and the, um, that idea that no one's going to do this alone. I mean, that's the, you know, we're not going to solve our toughest social problems, anyone working in isolation. It's just not going to happen, whether that's a celebrity nonprofit or a tiny little nonprofit or a multinational nonprofit. I mean, it's really about those partnerships. And I, and I don't mean that in a trite way. I mean, really deep partnerships that are actually are trying to make um, holistic spaces for people to live. Why isn't money enough? Why isn't a ton of money enough to, to affect a situation like this? Oh, my gosh. There's, there's the question. It's amazing. I mean, my first reaction is to say history and really deeply entrenched systems of inequality and inequity. Um, I mean, I would think that if you throw enough money at any issue, you could make it go away. But I really just I really wonder if it's history. I don't know. We'll leave it there. <laughs> That was Jesse Hardman speaking with Jean Firth. Many New Orleans residents not only have new houses since Hurricane Katrina, they have new neighbors. Before Katrina, only 3% of the city's population had lived here less than a year, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Now it's about 8%. That means tens of thousands of people coming to the city from elsewhere. New energy, new perspectives, new tax base— 
and for some existing New Orleanians, new annoyances with these recent arrivals. Reporter Eve Abrams looked at some of the tensions of old mixing with new. This past carnival, Crudevu Night, there was one sign that got a lot of attention. You may have seen it. Hipsters go home. People came out of the crowd and into the street to shake my hand and say, thank you for saying that. (laughs) But I really don't know who hipsters are. (laughs) Uh, I knew they were supposed to be responsible for a lot of problems. This is Henry Fulce, maker of the sign, proud member of Crudevu since its founding. A 70-year-old native-born New Orleanian. And a retired Loyola philosophy professor. Full says his idea for the sign came from his subcruise theme, Bulldozing for Change, and its suggestion that change was being spurred by hipsters, whoever they are. He intentionally played on the famous phrase, Yankee go home, which suggests a foreign intrusion. Full says many newcomers adapt smoothly and naturally to New Orleans values, while others never do. People who like old things and feel at home in a state of semi-disrepair, likely in a great well— But for people who move here with expectations that don't match what New Orleans offers, sometimes they try and change things. I think the thing about Henry's hipster go home sign is that a lot of young people come to New Orleans and they say, well, this is really cool, but it needs more coffee shops or it needs things that they want in their lives. And that is what is making New Orleans change a little too quickly. This is Joan Fulce, Henry's wife, and also a member of Crew de Vue. This quickness is entirely post-Katrina, she says, because of the way it brought people here. Hordes of spring break volunteers. Instead of going to the beach, people would come to New Orleans and gut houses. And a lot of them discovered New Orleans because of that. They would gut houses and then they'd go party in the French Quarter at night and hear music and eat food, even the year after Katrina. I mean, it was still such a cool place. Author and filmmaker Rebecca Snedeker grew up in New Orleans and moved right back after college in the mid-90s. It wasn't a popular choice at the time. I had been taught that if I wanted to do anything with my life, I had to get out. (laughs) Having come back and stayed in her hometown, Snedeker says she's grateful when people choose it bringing their different ideas, questions, and artistic practices. She says newcomers help her see things she considers normal, with fresh eyes. Besides, people have been coming and going since there's been a New Orleans. Certainly I feel territorial sometimes, like sometimes that crops up. But the thing I always go back to, whether I'm thinking about how people visited New Orleans or even like disaster voyeurism and tourism, I I always go back to this place of like people may be doing it imperfectly, but what if no one came? Change is good. Can't stay the same. So, I mean, you got to adjust to the, the new things around you. Simple. Myron Clark works at the St. Rock Market. He was in the back, baking bread pudding and cinnamon rolls the night the windows were smashed and yuppie equals bad was spray-painted on the building. He ran out to see what the noise was. I just seen all the glass broken. Me being the way I am, I ran back in there and started hiding. (laughs) Clark called the police, and then, even though he was scared, saved his cinnamon rolls from burning. He thinks the message was to get out of the neighborhood. But Clark says the city's going in the right direction, and he's grateful for his job. 
So is Harrison Carnes, a barista in the market at Coast Roast, who recently moved here from Seattle. Yuppie. It's interesting that they use that, because to me, yuppie is like an antiquated word. Think about, like, a New York stockbroker. I was kind of expecting just something, like, maybe more contemporary or obvious, like hipsters. People like the idea of a scapegoat. They like the idea of uh, blaming problems on some labeled group of people. Hipsters uh, do as well as anything. Again, sign maker Henry False, who points out hipster isn't an ethnic or religious slur. Maybe that's why we invent these labels, because other labels that were used by humor in the past are now no longer eligible, and so now we have to have new labels to create groups that we can make fun of. (laughs) So that when we're upset or anxious, instead of busting a window, we can laugh. Eve Abrams on the newcomers and the old timers. And that's where we'll put down this piece of Katrina debris. Now, we know some of you, especially our local audience, are feeling up to your ears in media coverage of Katrina. We've heard of people leaving town just to get away from this decade anniversary. Well, we, we just have one episode left, and we hope, if you're listening, you'll stick with us. Katrina the Debris is produced by Kate Richardson. Digital director is Jason Saul. Paul Mawson is general manager of WWNO. If you're enjoying our local coverage from here in New Orleans, consider giving to support New Orleans Public Radio. You can do that at wwno.org. Support also comes from Dirty Coast Press. Learn more about their locally designed and produced products at dirtycoast.com. I'm your host, Eve Tro, surviving this August heat. Until next time, be well, be good, be safe, and thanks. Thank you.